morning. If you got your Bible, turn with you to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. So if you uh, haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we have been studying this book of Lamentations. And if you remember, one of the things that I said as we kind of talked about what is lament uh, as an introduction to the book, I said that there are essentially two types of lament. One is lament that is uh, born out of suffering that's caused by sin, and the other is lament that's born out of suffering that has nothing to do with our sin, that's just sort of uh, suffering we encounter in the due course of life, uh, living in a fallen world. And so we, we've kind of distinguished between those two types, and there's a lot of broad principles about how to lament, and that's really the aim of our series, is that we would learn to lament so that we might grow in hope. We remember this, yes? Learn to lament so that we might grow in the hope that God has for us. And if I'm honest, I will tell you this. I much prefer to talk about how do we lament the kind of suffering that just um, comes into our life, has nothing to do with our sin, but is just there and present, and so we have to wrestle with it. And there, I have a tender place in my heart for those of you that that is where you are, you're encountering that, or you've been through that. But our text dictates to us where we go, and chapter two of Lamentations really deals very specifically uh, with the sin of the nation of Israel, the sin of Judah, uh, and what they had been doing, and how God then speaks in response to that. So what that calls for us to do today, then, is to really reflect on that type of lament that is born out of suffering that's caused by our sin, and to think about not just our individual sin, because this is a corporate lament, it's for the entire nation, and it's an admission of guilt on behalf of the nation. They're saying, we have forsaken the Lord. And remember, one of the things that I said is, as we think about how to apply this kind of an Old Testament text, the most direct line that we should draw between the covenant people of God in the old covenant, the nation of Israel, and then the new covenant people of God, the church, all those who have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that that's the most direct line of application. So that as we think about God saying, hey, here's how I have brought my judgment upon you as a nation, Israel, and we wanna draw principles from that about, well, what does that mean in terms of corporate responsibility uh, that we still bear? Rather than think individually about our own lives, it's helpful for us to think about our life together as a church. And I mean that, when I, when I say church, I mean West Shore Free Church, but I also mean broader categories of the church, like the church that exists in our country, the American church. How does this apply to us as a part of that group? Uh, and how does it apply to us as a part of the global church, the people of God across the world, across all nations, that are his by faith in Jesus. And so, big idea here today is simply this. As we look at Lamentations 2, we're gonna see that God is going to be, through this person who's lamenting, saying to the nation, here's what I have done in response to your sin. And they're gonna recount that. Here's what has taken place because we have sinned. And here are the reasons for that as well, some specifics, in fact, in fact one very specific thing uh, that the nation failed to do that brought God's judgment upon them and caused them then to walk in this suffering that's bringing about their lament. So what I'd like for us to think about today, together, is how would God, through this text, help us grow in our understanding of what it looks like to lament our corporate responsibility for sin together, or our corporate sin together. Not just our individual sins, but our corporate sin and our corporate responsibility for that. Now, before we even get into the text, I needed to help you probably with a little bit of background work. Now, not just by virtue of living in America, but by virtue of living in any really Western civilization, we tend to think more individualistically than we do think corporately. Now, I want you to know that's not the way a lot of nations function. There are many cultures and nations that tend to think corporately first and individually second, if at all. 
So one of the things that when I took a missiology class in seminary, one of the most fascinating cases that they gave us, the true life case that they made us wrestle with and say, what would you do in this scenario, was the story of some missionaries who had moved uh, to a, another country in a majority world context, and in moving there, they uh, preached the gospel, proclaimed the gospel again and again and again to this tribe of folks, and no one converted, no one believed in Jesus. But after multiple years, the chief of the tribe uh, came to the missionaries and said, you know, you've been living with us now for years, you've been telling us about Jesus, and we're going to have, the elders of the tribe tonight are going to have a, uh, a session. We're gonna discuss whether or not we as a group, as a tribe, want to believe in God, the God you're proclaiming to us. And so the missionary said, okay, and so they came that night, and they spent uh, like late into the night listening to these tribal elders argue back and forth about whether they should believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus. And some were vehemently opposed and some were adamantly in favor. And at the end of the night, the chief of the tribe said, all right, enough discussion, here's the decision. We will all believe in Jesus and be baptized. Everyone in the tribe. And the next morning, so the missionaries are now faced with, okay, well, we're from this individualistic context. For us, that is, like, we just heard them arguing why Jesus isn't God. Now the chief has spoken, and everyone immediately agrees and says, yes, that is what we will do. No one pushes back. No one says, well, no, I don't believe, therefore I'm in a part with, because they think what? Communally first, corporately first. It didn't make sense to them to think individualistically, and now these missionaries have a bit of a challenge. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that when we, sort of live in that sort of corporate, maybe tribal, cultural environment, the gospel gives a correction to that and says, no, actually, we stand before God for individual judgment before the Lord. That's a, there's an individual personal responsibility that each individual has. But do you know what else the gospel does? It says to those of us who live in very individualistic contexts, we're prone to think only about my personal responsibility, only about my personal relationship, that we belong to a people called the church and that we bear responsibility with our brothers and sisters for the sin of that body, for the choices that that body makes, particularly if we're in leadership in that body, we bear a responsibility, uh, and that we affect one another, that our, our corporate life is a real thing. Does that make sense? The gospel corrects us in going in error in either direction. So let me give you a little bit of thinking on what does it look like? I mean, let's ask this question before we even dive into the text, because it might help us a little bit. Is there such a thing as corporate responsibility for sin? I mean, is there a real way in which I am responsible for your sin and you're responsible for mine as a part of the body? We're prone to probably answer that question, no. And uh, if you're prone to answer it, no, you might be surprised that the Bible in some ways answers that question, yes. Now, the answer probably biblically is yes and no. And it's a little bit more complex than I have time to totally unpack today, but I wanna give you at least a little bit of thinking that might nudge you in the direction, those of us who are pretty individualistic, of thinking, okay, there is a biblical category for for corporate responsibility and for corporate repentance, therefore lament, uh, as it relates to sin among us. Now, we don't wanna overstate that, but we don't wanna understate it either, fair enough? All right, so let's just do a little bit of background here that will help us, all right? So, let me give you two biblical texts. Exodus chapter 20, verse five, and Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. Here's Exodus 20, verse five. And by the way, this is repeated in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You're gonna find a similar idea in Lamentations, the very book we're studying, chapter five, verse seven. The idea is this. God says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. I visit the iniquity, the sin, 
of the fathers, or the parents, upon the children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, what's God saying there? There's a corporate responsibility for the sin that I actually bring a disciplinary, I, I bring an effect of the sin of the father upon the son, upon the daughter. That's an idea of corporate responsibility in a generational way. But now go to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. Because there we find this, these words. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. What does that sound like? Individual responsibility, doesn't it? And it's not as simple as just saying, because some, some will say this. Well, we see in Jeremiah 31 in this prophecy about the new covenant that was gonna come, right? The old covenant is that God chose a group of people, the nation of Israel, and he gave them a law, and he said, I want you to obey me and follow me, and he did that so that he could send the Savior of the world through them, and then in sending the Savior of the world, he established a new covenant, which was no longer that we must obey the law because we couldn't do that, but rather that the law was kept for us, correct? By Jesus, and then because of his perfect keeping of the law, he was able to die in our place. Now all who come to him by faith, because of his grace, receive eternal life and are reconciled to God the Father. Somebody say amen to that. That's the new covenant, it's a beautiful thing, we live underneath that covenant. Well some would say, well Jeremiah in 31 says, hey this idea, he uses a metaphor, he says, it used to be said that the, the father ate sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. Isn't that a beautiful image? Right, it's this idea that like uh, a, a dad eats something and the son tastes it. Right, and, and it's a bad taste. Jeremiah says, it used to be said that that was the case. That will no longer be the case because now all will know me. All who come to me by faith, he's saying, in this new covenant, they will know me. But what's interesting is from the text we just read, it's not as simple as just saying, well, the old covenant was corporate and the new covenant is individual. It's not as just simple as that because we saw both individual and corporate under the old covenant in Ezekiel 18 in Exodus chapter 20 that we just read. So what do we do with that? Well, let me tell you what a couple of reformers and historical theologians have done with that, and then I'm gonna move on. I know we could spend our whole time on this and never get to Lamentations 2. Remember, my only agenda here is to help you think a little less individualistically, a little more corporately, but without stretching that too far, okay? So Calvin, John Calvin, great reformer, right? Uh, he said, the way he handled these two texts, when he looked at, he actually looked at Lamentations 5, 7, and Ezekiel 18, 20, and he said, well, these, you know, they're not contradictory because God's word doesn't contradict itself, so what do we do with that? Let me summarize for you what he said. He said, we are all judged individually as we stand before the throne of God. In other words, salvation is not something that's imparted corporately. It's imparted to individuals. An organization can't be saved. Individuals are saved by the grace of God. But, because we have covenant with one another and we live in close proximity to one another, relationally connected, right? Our sin impacts one another and therefore we bear the brunt of one another's sin. In other words, by, by virtue of not osmosis, but by virtue of life together, when I sin, it impacts you. When you sin, it impacts me and therefore we bear the burden of that. Does that make sense? So that, that's a relatively straightforward way of understanding it and I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, but... Another reformer, a guy named Francis Turretin, uh, an Italian reformer, stretches it a little bit further, and I think gives us a little bit more helpful categories, because he understands that our sin, the corporate responsibility for our sin as a body, as a people who are in covenant with one another, probably isn't just uh, 
as a result of the fact that we're in close proximity to one another, although that's a, that's a part of it. He says that there are three types of relationships that God tends to impart corporate responsibility within, and he calls them, I'll explain these in just a moment, but he calls them uh, natural, federal, and voluntary. Now, you're excited about those terms, I can tell, all right? What he meant by that is a natural relationship is like the relationship between a father and a son, a parent and a child. He says there seems to be a corporate responsibility in scripture that seems to be passed or, or connected between a parent and a child uh, or those who are in that kind of a, a natural relationship. Federal relationship just simply means a relationship between like a king and his servants or a leader and his people or her people, right? So where there's a leader who makes a choice, often the people bear the brunt of the punishment for the choice of that leader. Have you experienced that before? Right, that should be very sobering for any of you who want to lead within the people of God. And then the third relationship category he gives is voluntary, where he says a group of people who willfully make covenant with one another, that would be the church. A group of people who have willfully said, we are going to be a church family in covenant with one another, following after God together. And he says that there's a corporate responsibility that comes to bear in those contexts. I think, I think uh, Turretin has some helpful categories for us there as we think about this idea of corporate responsibility. Now again, corporate responsibility, there's a real biblical category for that, and I've, I've tried to show you that just now in a very shorthand way. But of course, that gets taken too far, so you get into schools like liberation theology, which I wanna warn you against, okay? Liberation theology is a theological teaching uh, which is growing in our day, and the essential idea of liberation theology is that everything is about power dynamics. It's not about individual sin and responsibility before the Lord, but rather, liberation theology teaches there are powerful people and there are oppressed people. And those who are power oppress those who are oppressed, and therefore, all sin, I'm, I'm sh giving a shorthand of this, all sin is no longer individual, but rather corporate, and it's all about systemic corporate nature of sin. Therefore, everyone in the group, whatever that group may be, whether it's socioeconomic or it's ethnic or whatever the basis of that group, whatever the group is, everyone in it is entirely guilty because they possess power and the oppressed do not. And therefore, by virtue, those in the oppressed group can never be guilty. Does that make sense? All right, that liberation theology carries the idea of corporate responsibility too far. Right? And it dismisses the individual aspect that the gospel highlights for us. So that's, a, that's an example of corporate responsibility taken too far, but there is a biblical category for it. Now I love what Kevin DeYoung, to come out of our reformers from like you know, 15th, 16th century now, coming to kind of modern day. I love what Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor, says about this, because as he talks about the idea of corporate repentance, sometimes that idea where there's corporate responsibility, then there's corporate repentance, and sometimes we find that there's this call to repent of things that it's like, well, okay, I never really had any participation in that, and it's maybe generationally I'm even removed from it by multiple generations, so I'm not sure what repentance looks like. And he argues that we should have really more refined categories for what sort of corporate repentance would look like, and I agree with him. I think he has some wise categories. Let me share with you the four categories he gives where it's possible to do some of these where we might not need to do others. So he talks about these four categories of corporate repentance. He says there's recognition which is that I acknowledge what happened perhaps in the past or as a part of this group that I'm a part of, and I see the negative effects of those sins of omission or commission. It's simply recognizing perhaps that say, we as a church caused harm in some way. It would be appropriate if you had nothing to do with it and I was as the leader uh, was the one responsible for it, it would still be appropriate for you to express recognition. Does that make sense? Hey, I'm a part of a body where this harm was caused perhaps. 
Secondly, there's remorse, which is just simply saying, I feel terrible about what happened. That's an appropriate response to, to perhaps a group that we belong to that created uh, sin or brought about sin and we bear responsibility for that in a way, but remorse is more appropriate than perhaps saying, I'm the one who did it. Renunciation is a third category he gives, which is I reject what has taken place in the past and repudiate those beliefs, words, thoughts, or actions. In other words, a, a, a way of acknowledging, hey, what happened was wrong, and I repudiate walking in that anymore. Now, the last category is repentance. I have sinned against God and will turn away from this evil and strive after greater obedience to God's law in my life. Now, I think having those four categories are really helpful because they help us balance the idea of corporate responsibility and therefore then corporate repentance where we as a body, we as a people, uh, different categories socio uh, sociologically that we belong to, perhaps we might say, okay, like I bear a responsibility by virtue of being a member of this group, but the kind of repentance that's appropriate or the kind of uh, recognition of that that's appropriate is perhaps to recognize it, repudiate it, maybe even uh, feel remorse over it, but perhaps we don't need to own the repentance piece of that, which is to say, like, I myself participated in that. I, I, I bear responsibility for having done that or for having not directly intervened when I should have because that took place. I think that's really helpful because often calls for corporate repentance really broadly, what they do is they actually let us off the hook where there's no costliness to, to the repentance because if I never really did it or participated in it and I sort of give a, a kind of corporate repentance uh, it, that is sort of vague and so generalized, I don't actually have to deal with my own sin my, and, and repent in a way that's costly where I say I'm going to turn from the sin. Does that make sense? All right, so that's just a little bit of thinking there. Now, we could go on and on there, yes? But let's go to Lamentations chapter two because what I wanted to give you there is the, it's just a, some categories for corporate responsibility because we're not prone to think that way. We're individualistic, that's our culture, it's our nature, and so we need a little bit of category for that. Now, how can we grow, as we look at Lamentations 2, the question is how can we grow as the people of God, the church, in learning to lament corporate sin? In learning to lament corporate sin. So this idea of corporate responsibility. So the first way that we can grow together is, that, is by learning that we need to see if God's hand of discipline is even on us. Learning that we need to see if God's hand of discipline is on us. The first 10 verses of Lamentations chapter 2 is the person who's writing, the author, offering the lament is essentially just recounting all the ways that God is punishing the people. He's saying, this is what God is punishing with, this is how God is punishing, this is how God is punishing. Now why does, why does he do that? Why does he take the time to recount all the ways? I, you know, if you're there, if you're living in Jerusalem at the time, can't you imagine, you'd be like, yes, I'm very well aware of all that's happening to us right now. We see it. We're experiencing it day by day. What the, what the author of Lamentations is trying to do is he's both expressing it as a, as a confession, like this is what's happening to us, and it's, and it's because of what we've done. So there's a way of owning sin that he's doing by saying essentially the disciplinary hand of God is, it's valid, it's, it's warranted in this scenario. So he's doing that. He's also trying to highlight it as a way to, to show the folks, hey, this is God's hand. It's not just happening, it's not just happenstance. This is God's hand. So look with me, let's just look at a couple verses here as we make our way through. 
Beginning in, in verse one, he says, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob in his wrath. He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. I'm gonna pause there because we could keep going. That's gonna go through verse 10, but you get, the, you get the picture that the author is painting where he's saying God's hand of judgment is upon us in a pretty severe and strong way. And he's trying to show this because if we don't know we're being disciplined, then we don't know that we need to lament. Does that make sense? If I don't know I'm under God's hand of discipline, then I don't know I need to lament. And so he's trying to point that out. Now, here's the other thing to remember. He's also connecting what he's saying to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. And you may wonder, well, why? Like, what, what's special about those? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus 26 are where God had written to the people in his law. He said, if you keep covenant with me, if you're faithful, then you will experience blessing upon blessing. And he enumerated the blessings that they would experience for being faithful and keeping covenant with him. But then right after that, he said, and here's the curses that you will receive if you don't keep covenant with me. If you're unfaithful, this is what will happen. And if you go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read Lamentations chapter 22, it's almost a blow by blow of the exact same things. In other words, what the author is saying is what God, what's happening right now is exactly what God said would happen. He promised this would happen and we knew it would if we failed to be faithful. So this shouldn't be a surprise to us. It's exactly what he said. In fact, verse 17, if you go down to verse 17 of Lamentations chapter two, look at what he says. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. But focus in on that part where he says, he has carried out his what? His word. In other words, he's pointing back to Deuteronomy 28, saying that's the word that God gave us. Friends, God, we love to talk about God's faithfulness, and rightly so. God is faithful, but God is faithful to keep all of his promises, and he had told them that this is what would happen. And it's God's very faithfulness of character that causes him to perform these acts of discipline in the same way that it's his acts of faithfulness that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, just two chapters after 28, he says, but if you repent and turn to me, I will restore you fully and completely. Isn't that a good thing? I don't want to leave you with just Deuteronomy 28. Because Deuteronomy 30 is really rich, right? Where he just two chapters, just repent, repent and turn. And my blessing will flow again. It will come to you, right? So then in terms of knowing, like knowing uh, that we are under God's hand of discipline. Now we cannot say that everything we find in Lamentations chapter two, which is what God had promised to do to the nation of Israel and then what he did. We can't say that those are all those things transfer to the church, when we think about God's hand of discipline upon us. But there may be some helpful indicators here and we gotta think about them in very kind of refined ways. We can't just sort of broadly apply them, but let's think for a moment here. Because look with me at some of the indicators of verses one through 10 that God's hand of discipline was on them. And let's ask ourselves, 
if we as the church, the new covenant people of God, see these same things happening in our midst, might they be indicators that God's hand of discipline is upon us? Is that fair? So let's, let's learn to ask that question. In verses three and four, look at this word. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand. Now that term right hand is really important in scripture. Whenever we see God's right hand referred to, it's always a reference to his protection, his power, and his favor. His power, his protection, and his favor, right? So anyone know, have a friend named Benjamin? No, Ben. all right, good, all right, we got a few Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my what? Right hand. In other words, son of my favor, son of my blessing, son whom I love, right? That's what the name Benjamin means. Jesus sits where? At the right hand of the God the Father, right? The place of privilege and honor and blessing, right? And so when we see here in verse three, it says that he has removed his right hand. What he's saying is he's removed his protection from us. He's removed his protection. And in verse four, it says he's actually taken his right hand and now used it in power against us. In other words, the hand that used to protect, now is the hand that brings discipline. Now is the hand that brings judgment. Now is the hand that brings difficulty upon the people of God. So one of the questions that we need to ask is where we see, where we see uh, his hand of protection seeming to have been removed might we be experiencing God's discipline? Now again, you can't take that too far because there are times where you experience difficulty and it's not because of sin, okay? We can't say just carte blanche. Anytime it seems like we're not protected, therefore then we are under the disciplinary hand of God. That's not true, but where we see that perhaps repetitively, repeatedly, we should at least ask the question, hey, if corporately we don't seem to be experiencing God's protection and provision, what might be going on? Is there sin that we need to consider? The second thing we see is in verses six and seven where we find this, freedom to worship according to God's word has been taken away. Freedom to worship according to God's word has been taken away. Verse six says, he has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. And verse seven is gonna repeat basically those same ideas. What he's saying there is, there's this way in which I have commanded my people to worship according to the law, to worship in the temple, within the city of Jerusalem, to come for certain festivals that they are to remember, so they remember what it is that I am their God and they are my people, and now all those things have ceased. There's no longer any ability, because of the exile, to worship according to God's word. Now friends, let me make sure I say this. Masks, no masks, is not being prevented from worshiping according to God's word, okay? We can worship according to God's word, whether we wear a mask or don't wear a mask, whether we need to put numbers restrictions in place or not, that has nothing to do with worshiping according to God's word. But where the church of God experiences an inability to bring God's word forward and to sit under the teaching of God's word and to worship God with freedom, there might be a way in which God is bringing disciplinary action upon his body where that is limited. And then the third thing, just for consideration, is where there's a failure to preach God's word with power, there perhaps might be the disciplinary hand of God. Look at verse nine. It says, her gates have sunk into the ground, talking about Jerusalem. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. In other words, they've been taken into exile. The law is no more, and here's the key, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. In other words, the prophets in the Old Testament, we don't still have the office of prophet, that's not a job anymore but there is, is still such a thing as speaking with prophetic voice, which we're gonna talk about in just a moment. What he's saying is these prophets who were supposed to speak to the people on behalf of God were no longer hearing from God. 
Now, while we don't have the office of prophet, what we do have is God's word, which speaks to us God's word. And it's not just when he says there's no more vision from the Lord that these prophets have. He's not just saying, he's not speaking to them. And well, we have God's word now, so we always are good. We always have what we need. I think what he's getting at is that these prophets are no longer able to bring forward in the calling of God upon their lives a powerful word for the people because he's not speaking to them. So where we might find that the preaching of God's word in a church context lacks power and vigor and authority, where the people don't respond but are hard-hearted, where we find that God's word doesn't take root among his people, where, where we don't walk out going, we have heard the word of the Lord together. We don't have that sense that God has met with us through his word. That perhaps may be an indicator that God's disciplinary hand is upon us. It's a dangerous thing to say when you're standing in my position. But it's true, right? So do we experience the power of God's word preached? No. Not the power of personality preaching God's word. Let's make sure about that. But the power of God's word preached. All right, second thing. So if the first thing is that we need eyes to see if God's hand of discipline might be upon us, then the next thing we need uh, to think about is that we need to see the cost of our sin to our children. We need to see the cost of our sin to our children. Now one of the focuses of Lamentations chapter two seems to be the cost, the corporate cost upon the kids of the sins of the parents. And as we think about this together within corporate life, that seems to be one of those indicators. And one of the things, I, one of the reasons I think this is here is because nothing causes us to see our need to lament more than when our kids are hurting. Right? Nothing hurts us more than when our kids are hurting. If you've had your kid go through a procedure and you've stood by their bedside and they just don't want to do it, they don't want to go through it, and you see the pain, if you could take their place, you would jump in that hospital bed in a heartbeat and take every shred of it. And, and one of the greatest pains is not being able to take it for them, yes? Not being able to just say, oh, yes, I want that for you. So when our children hurt, it wakes us up. At least it should wake us up. Look at what happens in, in um, Lamentations chapter 2. In verse 10, we hear young women who should be full of joy and in the, the prime of their lives are bowed down in the dust and in the dirt. In verse 11, we hear that infants faint in the streets for lack of food, for lack of nourishment. In verse 12, we hear that the, the lives of those infants are poured out on their mother's bosoms. The image is of a child without enough to eat being held by their mother until they pass away. In verse 20, one of the most difficult passages in all of scripture in my mind, in verse 20, we hear that women, because of the starvation of the people, are eating the fruit of their womb. Do you know what that means? They're eating their own young. That's how desperate it's become. Now listen, Jeremiah the prophet had begged the king to surrender to Babylon because he saw in accordance with Deuteronomy 28 that this was God's hand of judgment and that they should accept the exile that was coming to them rather than wall themselves up and hold out and try to fight a battle which was not just against Babylon but against the Lord's hand of discipline upon them for their sin. And he begged and pleaded and said, don't let the people go through this, king. Surrender to Babylon, we will be taken into exile but we will not have the young starving in the streets. And the king said no because other prophets had said other things to him. And so he said, we will hold out against Babylon. They are evil and we are righteous and there's no way this is God's hand of discipline upon us. 
the suffering of the children that the author of Lamentations is pointing out is meant to wake the people up to the consequences of their sin. Where we see our children pay a price within the life of the church for our sin, it should wake us up to the reality that lament is needed and repentance is needed. So let's ask ourselves the question, do we see a generation being raised in the church that are full of life and joy in the Lord, or do we see a generation being raised in the church who are turning from the ways of the Lord and embracing the values of the world? If the latter is true, if the latter is true, then part of the solution is to be awakened to the need for lament. Third thing we see that helps us grow in understanding our lamenting our corporate sin together in our life together corporately. Third thing we see is that we need to ask whether we are listening to the right voices. Now, here's where we get back to the prophets that I talked about. So look at verse 14 with me. If I said verses one through 10, he's recounting all the punishment that they're enduring. Then verses 11 through 18, he's essentially saying, here's why. Here's why we're enduring it. And verse 14 is the center of that. And here's what he says in verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Do you get what he's just said there? The people who are supposed to speak to the people on behalf of God and tell them what God has said, they are misleading the people. They are lying to them. They are saying that God's favor is upon them when in fact God's discipline is upon them. And there's one very clear marker that marks the false prophet from the true prophet here. Now, throughout scripture there are other markers, so this isn't the only one. But here's the one in in Lamentations chapter two, verse 14. The true prophets are willing to tell the people about their sin and the false prophets are not. The true prophets are willing to tell God's people about their sin and the false prophets are not. They keep telling them that, nope, God's hand of favor and blessing is on you, when in fact it is not. Now listen, if you're gonna exercise spiritual leadership in your family, in any kind of ministry context, in your, in your workplace, if you're gonna exercise spiritual leadership, you're gonna have to have a prophetic voice. And what I mean by prophetic voice is not that you know the future and you speak it, or that God reveals the future to you and you speak it. What I mean is you're gonna have, have to be willing to say hard things to people. A prophetic voice in scripture is, is usually, quite often, a voice that's declaring to a group of people, here's where you're not right, and here's what needs to change. A prophetic voice calls for repentance and change. If you're gonna lead spiritually, you're gonna have to exercise two types of prophetic voice. One is relatively easy, and one is very hard. The first type of prophetic voice you have to exercise is a prophetic voice to the people of God about the sin of the world outside and around them so that they don't move into that sin, so they don't take up the ways of the world. But can I tell you, that's relatively easy because the primary voice of those who speak for, uh, for God to God's people is to the people. And it's not hard to get a lot of pats on the back for talking about how evil the world is. That's real easy. When I talk about this, you know, the, the you know, explicit direction of sexuality in our culture and where it's headed, I, I get patted on the back. Way to stand firm. Way to be bold. It's not hard, right? It's not hard to, to decry things that are wicked in the world outside of us. So you're probably guessing what the sep- second type of prophetic voice is, aren't you? 
Because the second type of prophetic voice is to tell God's people where they are in sin, where they are walking in wickedness and not in righteousness. And that's a lot harder because the response quite often is anger, dismissal, and, you, and often uh, a, a way of finding caveats as to why that doesn't apply to me. But if you're gonna lead spiritually, both those types of prophetic voice must be in place. You can't just condemn the sin of the world and call the people of God out of it and say, don't walk in that. You can't just do that. That's necessary, you gotta do it, but you can't just do it. And you can't just say to God's people, here's where we have failed to walk with God, but you have to do it. You have to do it. You're gonna exercise spiritual leadership. That's the mark of the true prophet versus the false prophet here. And friends, as you're, as you're thinking about, you know, uh, a prophetic voice, I'll just, I'll close with this. Just ask the question, are we willing to have any prophetic voices in our corporate lives? Who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? We're listening to voices outside the church? We're listening to those with a track record of faithfulness in God's word? And the simplest explanation I can, the simplest uh, categories I can give you beyond just are they willing to speak hard truths to the people of God? The simplest thing I can do is does that prophetic voice lead to loving God and loving neighbor? Does it lead to loving God and loving neighbor? The greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Does the voice I'm listening to lead to that? If you perhaps think of yourself as a prophetic voice, ask the question always, any, all of us, all of us have to ask this question. Have I been clearly called? Has that calling been confirmed among the people of God? And have I demonstrated a track record of faithfulness? Have I shown courage and boldness? These are questions to ask ourselves if we think God has called us to take up a prophetic voice and to never stop asking ourselves. So friends, as we think about our life together and corporate lament, I just, it's heavy stuff. But let's remember, we can lament, we can confess, we can repent in a nuanced and a wise way, not in, not in a worldly secular way, but in a wise and godly and biblical way. We can do that, and we can do it with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. Remember what 1 John chapter 1, verse nine says. You remember it? If we confess our sins, friends, if we lament, if we repent, if we come to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Never fear to come in lament and grief over your sin to the Lord. He will receive you. Just as he promised the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 28, here will be the punishment if you forsake me. Deuteronomy 30, here will be the blessing if you repent and return. That continues to be the heart and the character and the nature of God. Repentance brings about his kindness. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Take your word and in a very nuanced way now apply it to our lives. Help us to think about ourselves as a church body and to consider and weigh our life together, not just to think of ourselves as individuals. I pray that you would give us wisdom in the days ahead to know how to repent, what to repent of, and how to bring lament together into our life as a body so that we might grow in hope and enjoy in days that are hard. So now, Father, our right response is to give you praise. Pray that you receive it from your people, from our hearts, not just from our mouths. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together as we close our time in worship.